my pleasure to be here tonight to be speaking with Katrina, and we discussed earlier today um, the thought to start with some reading, mm-hmm. so we can get in the mood. So I get to do the first story, um, and uh, this is one of Clarice's later stories. Um, it's called Before the Rio Niteroi Bridge. And actually, before we start, let's say something about Clarice. She's a Brazilian writer, born um, in the Ukraine in 1920, and her family moved to Brazil before she was a year old. Um, First to the northeastern part of Brazil, and then when she was a little older, to Rio. And she grew up um, uh, in an immigrant family. She studied law. Um, Then she married a diplomat. She lived all over the world. Um, And she always wrote and always published. Her first story came out when she was 17 or 19? Uh, 19, 1939. Mm -hmm. And she's an amazing writer, Um, beloved in Brazil, known as Clarice just by her her first name. You don't need a last name. She's Mm -hmm. she's so known. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to have this book in hand because it's the first time that all of her stories have ever been in one volume. That hasn't even happened in Portuguese yet. Um, And Katrina's translations are masterful. Um, They maintain the playfulness of the language. Clarice uses um, an unusual type of syntax and grammar in Portuguese. So if what you hear sounds a little bit bizarre, a little bit unusual, a little bit shocking, it's on purpose. And what's wonderful is that um, Katrina has maintained that. Some of the earlier translators of uh, Clarice's work, her novels and her stories, sort of smoothed those things over to make it more palatable, more easily digested. Um, And that's not uh, how it was meant to be. So um, it's really a privilege to be able to read this version of this story to you now. Before the Rio Niteroi Bridge. And the, the title in the Portuguese is Antes da Ponte Rio Niteroi. Well then, whose father was the lover with the type of his, the lover of the wife of the doctor who treated his daughter, that is, the lover's daughter, and everyone knew. And the doctor's wife would hang a white towel in the window, signaling that her lover could come in. Or else it was a colored towel, and in which case he wouldn't. But I'm getting all mixed up, or maybe this whole affair is so tangled that I'll try to untangle it. Its realities are invented. I apologize because besides recounting the facts, I'm also guessing, and whatever I guess, I write down here. Scribe that I am by fate. I guess at reality. But I didn't sow the seeds for this story. The harvest is for someone more capable than I, insignificant as I am. So the daughter's leg got gangrene and they had to amputate it. This Jandira, 17, fiery as a young colt and with beautiful hair, was engaged. As soon as her fiancé saw that figure on crutches, brimming with joy, a joy that he didn't realize was pathetic, you see, the fiancé had the nerve to simply call off the engagement without remorse. Everyone, even the girl's long-suffering mother, begged the fiancé to pretend he still loved her, which, they told him, wouldn't be so hard because it wouldn't last long, since his fiancé didn't have long to live. And three months later, as if keeping the promise not to weigh heavily on the fiancé's faint-hearted notions, three months later she died, beautiful, hair-flowing, inconsolable, longing for her fiancé and frightened of death the way a child is afraid of the dark. Death is made of a great darkness, or maybe not. I don't know what it's like. I haven't died yet, and I won't know even after I die. 
Maybe it's not all that dark. Maybe it's a blinding light. Death, I mean. The fiancé who went by his last name, Bastos, apparently lived, even while his fiancé was still alive, lived with a woman. And he stayed with her, not too worried about things. Well, that passionate woman got jealous one day, and she was devious. I can't leave out the cruel details. But where was I? Did I lose my train of thought? Let's start over, and on another line and another paragraph to get off to a better start. Well, the woman got jealous, and while Bastos was asleep, poured boiling water from the spout of a teapot into his ear, and all he had time to do was howl before fainting. A howl, we might guess, was the worst cry he had, the cry of an animal. Bastos was taken to the hospital and hanging between life and death, one locked in fierce combat with the other. The virago named Leontina got just over a year in jail, from which she got out to meet guess who? Well, she went to meet Bastos. By then, a very gaunt Bastos, who of course was deaf forevermore, the same guy who hadn't excused a physical defect. What happened? Well, they moved back in together, love forevermore. Meanwhile, the 17-year-old girl was long dead, her sole trace remaining in her wretched mother. And if I've thought of that girl out of the blue, it's from the love I feel for Jandira. So now her father turns up as if by chance. He was still the lover of the wife of the doctor who had treated his daughter with devotion. The daughter, the daughter that is, of the lover. And everyone knew the doctor and the dead ex-fiancé's mother. I think I've lost my train of thought again. It's all a bit jumbled, but what can I do? The doctor, though he knew that the girl's father was his wife's lover, had taken good care of the little fiancé, so terrified of the dark that I mentioned. The father's wife, hence the ex-fiancé's mother, knew all about the adulterous flourishes of her husband who wore a gold pocket watch in his vest and a jeweled ring, a diamond-studded tie pin. A well-to-do businessman, as they say. For folks respect and bow to the rich, the winners, don't they? He, the girl's father, dressed in a green suit with a pink pinstriped shirt. How do I know? Look, I just know. The way you do by imaginative guessing. I know, period. There's one detail I can't forget, which is, the lover had a little gold front tooth, purely out of luxury, and he smelled like garlic. His entire aura was pure garlic, and his lover didn't even care. All she wanted was a lover, give or take the smell of food. How do I know? Knowing. I don't know what became of these people. I didn't hear any more news. Did they go their separate ways? You see, it's an old story, and there may have been some deaths among them, these people. Dark, dark death. I don't want to die. I'll add an important fact, and one that, I don't know why, explains the accursed source of the whole story. It happened in Niteroi, with its wooden docks always damp and grimy, and its ferries coming and going. Niteroi is a mysterious place and has old, dark houses. And could boiling water in a lover's ear happen there? I don't know. What's to be done with this story that took place back when the Rio Niteroi Bridge was no more than a dream? I don't know that either. I offer it as a gift to whoever wants it, because I'm sick of it, nauseated even. Sometimes I get sick of people. Then it passes, and I become fully curious and attentive again. And that's it. (laughs) 
Okay, so there were 85 stories to choose from, so <laughs> it's, it's a difficult <laughs> decision to make. Um, and one of the things that's so great about this collection is that it just has, I mean, it gives you such a full range of Claudice's work over the course of her life. You know, her first story from the age of 19 in 1939 to... Um, 1977 um, she died on the eve of her 57th birthday and um, yeah so I and I think just I mean like the story we just heard it's so different from the novels so if you're familiar with the novels um, you'll see reflections of them in, in miniature in a lot of the stories but so many of the stories are doing I mean the kind of comic and burlesque and have so much of everyday life in Brazil and Rio that you don't get as much in the novels and so I chose um, a story um, it's called A Quinta Historia, the fifth story and um, it's a, it's a well-known story and it's I chose it because it has this mix of being in some ways very everyday but also you know gives this kind of sinister quality that I find so compelling in Clarice and a little bit oracular um, and I'll read a little bit of it in Portuguese first. Um, and, and also, just before I start, I just want to say thank you to Skylight and to Magdalena for being here. And I have a lot of people here, <laughs> so thanks to all my friends <laughs> for showing up. Um, okay, a quinta história. Esta história poderia chamar-se as estátuas. Outro nome possível é o assassinato e também como matar baratas farei então pelo menos três histórias verdadeiras porque nenhuma delas mente a outra embora uma única seriam mil e uma se mil e uma noites me dessem a primeira como matar baratas começa assim queixei-me de baratas uma senhora ouviu-me a queixa Deu-me a receita de como matá-las, que misturasse em partes iguais açúcar, farinha e gesso. A farinha e o açúcar as atrairiam. O gesso esturricaria o de dentro delas. Assim fiz. Morreram. And so for anyone um, who's read The Passion According to G.H., you know that cockroaches play a central role in the work of Claudice Lispector. And anyone who's lived in Rio de Janeiro, which is where this story <laughs> takes place, knows that you cannot live in that city for a certain amount of time without encountering these enormous tropical cockroaches that fly. <laughs> and you learn very quickly all the ways to kill them. <laughs> I do not kill any insect. I catch them all in a little jar and throw them out the window, except the cockroach. I say, so, so this is a story about how to kill cockroaches, among you know, infinite other things. I will give my best method for killing cockroaches to take your Havaiana rubber um, flip-flop and just whack it just straight, <laughs> straight down. It's the only way. It's just in a second. <laughs> no risk of flying away. <laughs> Here's Clarice's method. Having a little bit of um, let's see, trouble. Okay, I got it. <laughs> this story could be called. This is the fifth story. This story could be called the statues. Another possible name is the murder. 
and also how to kill cockroaches. So I will tell at least three stories, all true because they don't contradict each other. Though a single story, they would be a thousand and one, were I given a thousand and one nights. The first, how to kill cockroaches, begins like this. I was complaining about cockroaches. A lady overheard me. She gave me this recipe for killing them. I was to mix equal parts sugar, flour, and plaster. The flour and sugar would attract them. The plaster would dry up their insides. That's what I did. They died. The other story is actually the first one and is called The Murder. It begins like this. I was complaining about cockroaches. A lady overheard me. The recipe follows. And then comes the murder. The truth is that I was only complaining about cockroaches in the abstract, since they weren't even mine. They belonged to the ground floor and would crawl up the building's pipes to our home. Only once I prepared the mixture did they become mine too. In our name, then, I began to measure and weigh the ingredients with a slightly more intense concentration. A vague resentment had overtaken me, a sense of outrage. By day, the cockroaches were invisible, and no one would believe in the secret curse that gnawed at such a peaceful home. But if they, like secret curses, slept during the day, there I was preparing their evening poison. Meticulous, ardent, I concocted the elixir for drawn-out death. An excited fear and my own secret curse guided me. Now I icily wanted just one thing, to kill every cockroach in existence. Cockroaches crawl up the pipes while we, worn out, dream. And now the recipe was ready, so white. As if for cockroaches as clever as I was, I expertly spread the powder until it looked more like something from nature. From my bed, in the silence of the apartment, I imagined them crawling one by one up to the laundry room where the darkness was sleeping, just one towel alert on the clothesline. I awoke hours later with a start when I realized how late it was. It was already dawn. I crossed the kitchen. There they were on the laundry room floor, hard, huge. During the night, I had killed. In our name, day was breaking. Up in the favela, a rooster crowed. The third story that now begins is the one about the statues. It begins by saying that I had been complaining about cockroaches. Then comes the same lady. It keeps going up to the point where, near dawn, I awake and, still sleepy, cross the kitchen. Even sleepier than I is the room from the perspective of its tile floor. And in the darkness of dawn, a purplish glow that distances everything, I discern at my feet shadows and white forms, dozens of statues scattered, rigid, the cockroaches that have hardened from inside out, some belly up, others in the middle of a gesture never to be completed, in the mouths of some a bit of the white food. I am the first witness of daybreak in Pompeii, I know how this last night went. I know of the orgy in the dark. Inside some of them, the plaster will have hardened as slowly as during some vital process, and they, with increasingly arduous movements, will have greedily intensified the night's joys, trying to escape their own insides, until they turn to stone in innocent shock, and with such, such a look of wounded reproach, 
Others, suddenly assaulted by their own core, without even the slightest inkling that some internal mode was, mold was being petrified. These suddenly crystallize the way a word is cut off in the mouth. It's you, I. They who, taking the name of love in vain, kept singing through the summer night. Whereas that one there, the one whose brown antenna is smeared with white, must have figured out too late that it had been mummified precisely for not having known how to make use of things with the gratuitous charm of being in vain. Because I looked too deep inside myself, I looked too deep inside. From my cold human height, I look at the destruction of a world. Daybreaks. The occasional antenna of a dead cockroach quivers dryly in the breeze. From the previous story, the rooster crows. The fourth narrative inaugurates a new era at home. It begins as we know. I was complaining about cockroaches. It goes up to the moment I see the plaster monuments. Dead, yes. But I look toward the pipes from where this very night a slow and living population will renew itself in single file. So would I renew the lethal sugar every night? Like someone who can no longer sleep without the eagerness of a rite. And every dawn lead myself to the pavilion with a compulsion of greeting the statues that my sweaty night has been erecting. I trembled with wicked pleasure at the vision of that double life of a sorceress. And I also trembled at the sign of plaster drying, the compulsion to live that would burst my internal mold, a harsh instant of choosing between two paths that, I thought, are bidding each other farewell, and sure that either choice would be a sacrifice, me or my soul. I chose, and today I secretly boast in my heart a plaque of virtue. This house has been disinfested. The fifth story is called Leibniz and the Transcendence of Love in Polynesia. It begins like this. I was complaining about cockroaches. The end. (laughs) (laughs) So fantastic. Um, So you've you've provided a great segue to my first question, and that's the double life of a sorceress. Um, I have a quote from... The introduction of the complete stories, um, this is an essay by Benjamin Moser, who's the editor of this book and of a a series of new translations of Cladice's work that have come out with new directions. Um, So this is the sixth, the the, the prior five are all novels. Yes. Um, And in his introduction, he says, um, the connection between literature and witchcraft has long been an important part of Cladice Lispector's mythology. Um, So thinking about that and the double life of a sorcerer that appears in um, the story you just read, I wanted to know, as you went about your process of translating Cladice stories, did you develop any rituals or incantations to connect with her literary spirit? Wow, it's so personal. <laughs> just, yeah, cut right to it. Um, you know, I mean, I had my process of, of working, um, you know, just doing the work, going through the... the um, 
the the stories I went chrono- chronologically, um, but you know I think we all have our own talismans, our own things. I mean this is this is so present in Clarice. You know there's she has her her element of Jewish mysticism. She's Catholic in that way that just Brazilians are culturally Catholic. Um, she's carioca, <laughs> just you know from Rio in this way. You know she's she was um, very um, you know she followed astrology, went to see a fortune teller psychic, and I think. Um, I mean, I don't know if I had so many rituals, but you know, one thing I had with me, I moved, I moved, um, I moved three times at least <laughs> while I was translating this book, and always in the place where I was working, I had a poster of her up that came from um, the Instituto Moreira Salas um, in Rio, and it's just it's a poster of her with her hands over her face like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, we all know she's she's very beautiful, and it's hard, I think, to encounter her in this latest uh, round of translations without knowing how beautiful she was. And and she does, I mean, she has such a hypnotic gaze, I and mean, she's she's been she's been hypnotizing everyone to buy the book <laughs> and write about it. <laughs> um, and so I think for me, it was it was important to have her there in the room with me, but not have her face or have this, you know, this this sign of you know she's covering her face and it's a sign of sometimes anguish (laughs) but also just um, interiority you know you're going deep inside yourself Um, or maybe she's not looking and she's letting you do your thing as the translator yeah well that's what the psychic said (laughs) so I did I went to see (laughs) a famous astrologer psychic in San Francisco this January Uh and um, (laughs) yeah you know Clarice came to the reading who knows you know people are skeptics but it was it was an interesting um, dialogue but you know there was a moment where she you know I talked to her a lot you know just in the mirror there are a lot of in her books there are a lot of characters looking in the mirror a lot of women kind of centering themselves again by looking in the mirror so there's a lot of looking in the mirror and talking to Clarice but in the psychic reading she said you know she feels very honored and and you know <laughs> I mean you know she was being reassuring <laughs> you're That's doing fantastic. a good job <laughs> well the translations are amazing so whatever you you've been doing it's been working wonderfully um so in in your translator's note which um we earlier today we i had the the pleasure to be with katrina at ucla where she gave a talk Mm -hmm. to students there and it was so interesting it was a great kind of um fertile ground for me to get questions for tonight Mm -hmm. um your translator's note, which you mentioned this morning, you asked to write. It wasn't something that they were thinking um, initially to include necessarily. Um, so in that note, which is so wonderful, you talk about how translating Clarice has been a disorienting experience. That's the phrase you use. And I wanted to ask you to elaborate on that and maybe give us a concrete example. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I think I think I actually say reading her both, but reading her alone is a disorienting experience. So I think just on the level of reading her, you know these these kind of um, you know she's disorienting on the on the level of the sentence commas show up where they shouldn't be or words don't seem to hold together in the normal way um, and. You know, she, I call it kind of the subtle surrealism. She's not being really um, openly experimental in every single sentence. It's just, you know, she'll go along, it's just normal, 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 and all of a sudden, you know, there's a line like, next to her was a woman in blue, comma, with a face. 
it's like, why that comma? Why the face? Why is it remarkable that a woman has a face? And it's from the story Love, and it's this moment where the character Anna, you know, she's just seen this blind man chewing gum. And this is, you know, it's, so many of her characters have these moments, these kind of alien encounters, you know, with another anim- with an animal, you know, cockroach, a chicken, um, an egg, a, a red-haired girl has an encounter with a red-haired dog, and it's this kind of perfect moment and then it ends and you know the dog walks off with its master so there are all these in, kind of collisions unexpected collisions in Clarice so in that the woman with the face um, in love and the housewife Anna has just she's she's on the tram riding the tram home from grocery shopping and kind of you know happy with her life with her husband and her two kids and she's a sweet you know, housewife and mother who's needed. And then all of a sudden, you know, no one needs her in this moment. She's just riding the tram and she sees this blind man who's chewing gum and his mouth is just opening, closing, opening, closing. And she feels as if he's mocking her. And it just makes, like, all of her, her whole entire life just kind of come crashing down. And, you know, I think... um, you know, and then all these commas appear and this one with the face and all this weird stuff happens in the grammar and the syntax. And so I think that she's disorienting to, disorienting to read, but when you're translating her, it is a version of just reading very closely and you're reading, you know, countless times because you're going over all of these, um, you know, you're doing all these drafts. And so I think just inhabiting her characters is very intense. I mean, as some of you who've read her already and some of you who will read her, you'll know, I mean, the, the books, and the stories, I mean, they can be, they're beautiful to read and many can be very, you know, entertaining and light, but they also ask a lot of you emotionally. I mean, people are having really deep psychological, philosophical, mystical, emotional... Awakenings, right? Awakenings. So to do this 85 times <laughs> over and over and over again, four decades of work in two years' time, it's going to spin your head a little bit and it's going to leave very little time for the rest of your life. So <laughs> I've also, I always found her, the, the characters who have those epiphanies that are so profound and then their life stays the same. You know, that's, that's also part of, I think, the shock. Yeah, the, and I, the, I, dis- I, the disturbance. I mean, you occur. get the sense that they're changed forever, but yeah, I mean, there's but some. But maybe only on the inside. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's, um, you know, a story from the beginning called "The Escape," where a woman she's making this, you know, very bold move to leave her husband, and she and you're, you know, you accompany her almost there, and then she decides at the very end not to get on this boat. And she thinks, you know, I can't... This is one of the very early stories. She's in the 40s, and she's, you know, kind of this bourgeois wife, and she thinks, I can't stay at a cheap hotel because it's not the proper thing to do. I can't go to a nice hotel because I'll run into one of my husband's associates. She doesn't know what to do with herself, so she just goes back home. And her husband's in his pajamas, and they set the alarm clock. He says, okay, wake me up at 7. And, you know, and so it's, um, it's devastating. <laughs> yeah. But. Did you, so did you find, have you found that this disorientation has extended to your own writing? Um, yeah, like I said this morning, that remains to be seen. I think I've had so little time, so I was translating this for two years, and it, in the middle of all that, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, as you heard, I was writing a dissertation, and so this basically came along and totally derailed my dissertation. So between doing this for two years and turning around, you know, since the end of May till now, I just have had no time. But I think. You know, I've, I've written things here and there, but I think, um, 
you know, being under her dominion and also having to write this dissertation and then seeing how much freedom she gave herself to just write whatever the hell she wanted <laughs> and however she wanted. You know, she really is doing, she's, you know, breaking grammar in many ways. Or just, I say she's bending it to the point of breaking, but it always sounds right, if not correct. Um, but I think she, she, I've learned a lot of courage through her, so I think whatever I do next, um, I definitely ha- feel yeah, a sense of solidity from having learned so much about writing and about just everything from her. Yeah, yeah. You, you've brought up the disser- dissertation a couple of times, so mm-hmm. I wanted to bring that up now because <laughs> we we both wrote dissertations on the same poet, Elizabeth Bishop, mm-hmm. who translated Clarice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely want to talk to you about that now um, <laughs> uh, uh, and where to begin. The the three stories that Bishop translated are are very very interesting. Um, a hen, marmosets, which you translate as monkeys, and then the smallest woman in the world, who's this tiny pygmy who's discovered by a French explorer, and she's sort of, by the explorer, treated kind of like, you know, an animal, a discovery, an object, a a possession. He names her. She exists now that he's seen her. Um, And I wanted to know, off the record, in all honesty, what do you think about Bishop's translations of Clarice's stories? Sure, yeah, I mean, they were definitely in my head because I write about Bishop. I know those stories very well. Um, you know, I I think, you know, they're, I haven't read them in a long time because at a certain point you don't, you know, you want to establish your own voice, so you don't want, you kind of look like this at the other translations, <laughs> you know, like look at a word here or there, like when you're having trouble, but you don't want to read the whole thing through. But, I say, I mean, I have enormous respect for her as a poet and a writer, and I think the stories that she translated, they're beautiful stories, Um, and it's great that you have her version, you have my version, and you also have another by Giovanni Pontero, so it's such a great luxury to have many versions, especially if you don't speak Portuguese, you know, to have many versions of the translation, you can kind of see what the pressure points are, you know, where it's interesting to see what people have, you know, different, um, different takes, so... You know, I think um, they're very, they they sound like Bishop. They sound very much like Bishop. I don't know how much they sound like Lispector. They're somewhere in the middle. And so I think that, I think they're definitely worth reading because she's such a great artist. And, um, you know, who knows if I could ever write like her. But I do think her level of Portuguese, even though she lived in Brazil um, for over 15 years, so 1951 to 1967, and then kind of off, on and off until um, through 1970. So she lived there for a long time, but with her partner Lotta, you know, they spoke in English. She didn't, she obviously, you know, she spoke Portuguese, but not, she never took that she never was invested in really learning Portuguese. She said, I'm like a dog. I understand everything, but I can't really speak. I mean, she could speak, but so I think, you know, there, when I'm going through it, I mean, you know, I've lived in Brazil. I mean, if you add it all up, it's a total of four years. And, you know, I'm, I'm writing a dissertation on Brazilian authors who I read in the original. I've taught Portuguese. So I can see her mistakes. I can yeah. see the difference. Even with early translation, you can, you can see who... You can kind of extrapolate people's levels of Portuguese based on how they translate or what comes through idiomatically or literally or not. I mean, not always, but yeah. So I think that, you know, in terms of accuracy, she doesn't always get it, but they're just really great 
great yeah, stories. Yeah, it's a really yeah. interesting trio, and, and I mm -hmm. agree with you. It's it's yeah. definitely sort of like what Bishop would have written if she had been Lispector. Yeah, but um, you know, something like Mars, so she calls... Um, Macacos. It's macacos in, in Portuguese. She calls it marmosets. But marmosets, you call them micos. So there's in the story, you have macacos and you have micos and you have gorillas. So then I'm trying to track when she says gorilla, when she says monkey. And the micos, it's like they look super evil. They're, if anyone's ever been to Sugarloaf, like Pound of Sugar, you have these like, super evil monkeys. And they're like, <laughs> with the pointy like, ears. With the pointy ears and little red faces, and they like steal your snacks. So to me, those are the marmosets. Those are the micos. But <laughs> so it's Brazilian. Not the same. Three different. So yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm being yeah no, too precise. But no precision. No, but precision is good. yeah yeah. Um, so and then and then Bishop wrote this uh, this trio of poems: Giant Toad, Strayed Crab, and Giant Snail mm -hmm, that, that came out um, in '67, three years after her Bishop um, her Lispector translations came out, and I think they're a response. To the stories, oh, wow. and I wanted you to talk about that. Or I don't know if you think that uh -huh. that rings true. Um, I have such a deep and personal relationship to those um, poems. It's it's a prose poem series called Rainy Season Subtropics. And for my thirtieth birthday, I had this kind of variety show, and I had people perform that. So I had my friends, you know, one dress up as giant toad with a green hoodie and ping pong, you know, toad eyes. I had strayed crab who's like tap dancing, like I'm making too much noise, and then a giant snail. I have a very very involved and I you know told I like called everyone that morning I was like okay here's your motivation you're all in love with the snail and this is going on this is going on so I actually have never connected them to Claudius Lispector but I will say the thing that Elizabeth Bishop and Claudius Lispector have in common and, and this is where Bishop found an affinity to so Bishop loved her stories but she she really dismissed the novels she thought they were no good she wasn't she wasn't having all the philosophical stuff. I mean, you know, they lived like three blocks away from each other in Lemmy, which is a neighborhood like right, it's basically Copacabana in Rio de Janeiro, but they had very little contact. I mean, to the extent that they were both important women writers living in Rio at the same time, they had contact, but I think people try to make a lot of their relationship, and I think it wasn't, it wasn't as, but, but they both had this animal thing. I mean, both Bishop and Claudice, you were just obsessed with animals. And I think they get a lot of, um, on one hand, just like animal movement, animal language, animal expression, but also just, there is a certain kind of anthropomorphism in both of them. Also the yes. ways that, you know, what's useful about thinking about animals having human attributes. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> um, the, uh, so, and what about the humor in the stories? Because the stories are very funny at times. And um, I have kids. I have small kids. They're ages seven, five, and three. And they're constantly being silly, telling riddles, talking about, you know, poop, things like that. Um, and as I've been rereading the Spectre now that I have kids, I see her in a completely new way. Yeah. It's so wonderful. And sometimes this voice that seems very philosophical or maybe even biblical to me sounds very much like my three-year-old. It's this logic that is incredibly precise and clear and logical and yet not like any logic you've ever encountered in the adult world. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about that, the sort of childlike logic, if you see that in the specter. And can we pair that with uh, humor? Or if you want to talk mm -hmm. about them separately. Yeah, I mean, I think you could talk about them together and separately. Um, 
you know, she was a very intelligent, very well-educated, very well-read woman. She was one of the first women in Brazil to get a law degree. And I think people don't talk about that because toward the end of her life, she took a very anti-intellectual, anti-literature stance. And I think it's there, you know, more. And she had this, you know, kind of heavily annotated copy of Spinoza. So, I mean, she's, you know, she's a, <laughs> a well-educated lady. Um, two sons, right? Two sons, yeah, Paulo and Pedro. And, um, but I think, yeah, toward as the further she gets, and you know, you can accompany her in these in these stories. But the further along she gets, I mean, she's never really she doesn't make a lot of allusions to other writers. You may might just be able to feel their presence. But later on, you know, she she did get kind of. Um, you know, I think she was very against authority, so intellectual authority, masculine authority, um, just, yeah, those kinds of ways of controlling knowledge, and she wanted to get around that. So I think that's where that kind of attempt at simplicity and thinking around known forms um, of mastery, that's where that kind of childlike yeah. part comes. And then you can feel her being a mother so much in these stories. So, um, you know, one of my friends who's here, her eight-year-old daughter wants her to bring a book home to her. <laughs> Kathy, and she's like, I don't know. I said, oh, I'll tell you which ones. Because, you know, there are many that are good to read to children. I mean, they're about animals. They're, they're sweet. And there's a lot of, you just, you feel her as a mother in these stories and how much love she had and affection for the world. I mean, she's so sensitive. You know, there's a lot of melancholy in the stories, but I think you feel that love in these stories that you might not in the novels, like, you know, Passion of Corner G.H. or Agua Viva or Breath of Life. Mm. Yeah. Um, and they're funnier. Yeah. <laughs> they're humor. I mean, they're just, they're really funny. Yeah. Even the cockroach one, right? The fifth story. We're like dark humor. Yeah. Um, I wanted to play a little game uh, with you if you're willing to do it. <laughs> um, it depends. <laughs> you can say no if you don't want to do it. But here's my idea. I'm going to say a word. And you're going to respond with the first word that comes to mind. They're all Cluddy C related, I promise. <laughs> Is that okay? I only get one word. That's really hard for me. <laughs> I'll try. Okay, you don't have to stick to one. I'll try. Um, I'll say one, though. The first one is epiphany. Yes. <laughs> See, I knew you could do it. <laughs> okay, number two. Egg. Chicken. <laughs> Heat. Cold. <laughs> okay, no more opposites. Comma. Virgula. Love. Amor. <laughs> no more translations. <laughs> it's just the first word that comes to my mind. <laughs> Monkey. <laughs> Mikus. I can't help. I can't. Okay, I only have three more. We'll see if this goes anywhere, but it's okay if it doesn't. Gold. Mm, bad gold. <laughs> Translator. Me. <laughs> Clarice. Clarice. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Wonderful. So, um, will you give me the report afterwards? You passed with flying colors. <laughs> I want the psychological profile from that. <laughs> um, so, here I have two more questions, then I want to open up to all of you. Um, 
We spoke earlier today about the parallels, the possible parallels between translators and actors, and translation as a kind of performance. The idea that translators are channeling the author of the original text. And I asked you whether there were certain roles or stories you found more familiar or comfortable to channel and whether there were others that were more challenging. And you said that the confused women tended to feel like kindred spirits. These were skins that you could sort of easily slip into. Mm-hmm. And I guess like crazy, too. Maybe just <laughs> like weirdos. <laughs> and, and find their voices. Um, and you talked about imitation of the rose, um, this woman trying to hold on to her sanity, and she's this obsessive perfectionist, mm-hmm. um, Laura and Anna in love, also the departure of the train, the older and younger woman who, who start speaking to each other in their minds. Um, and then there was the one about the older woman who gets lost in the tunnels of Maracana. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you said... The, the Achilles heel for you in translating Clarice would be the religious language, mm-hmm. especially in, in Via Crucis. Um, so what strategies did you employ to get yourself more in tune with the religious registers, if any? Yeah, I mean, I think anything, anything that gave me trouble that I didn't feel... Um, you know, any kind of language that I didn't feel that I instinctively knew. You know, the women's stuff, it's like you just inhabit it, you know... Um, yeah, I mean that was that was my way into her. But other things like that, and even just Brazilian stuff, sometimes you know, obviously you won't know. The internet is a great tool. I highly recommend <laughs> it <laughs> for when you need to research things. So I mean, that is such a great thing. I mean, such a, a great difference in translating today versus pre-internet because you have the dictionary meaning of words, but so much of translation has to do with the usage, the everyday usage of a word and how it falls on people's ears, the register. Um, and there's so much idiomatic stuff that's just not in the dictionary. Is there an urban dictionary equivalent in Portuguese? I don't know. Is there? What is it? What's it called? No, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I need to search on the internet. What do you yeah, stuff like that. I mean, I, know. I ended up, you know, so I told, I said yeah, I mean, no, I ended up in a lot of weird places on the internet. You know, at one point I was on, I was looking, oh, I was researching, um, oh, olhos fundos. So this means deep eyes, a character's deep eyes, but it's part of a physical description, and it happens many times, and I don't know if I should say deep eyes or deep set eyes, Mm. and I looked at all these, I just got onto all of these makeup blogs, (laughs) (laughs) and at one point, I was, it's like 2 a.m., and I'm watching, it's like this girl from the interior, Mina Jirai, is like 18 years old with this kind of like country accent, she's like doing a makeup tutorial, I'm like laughing, like peeing my pants laughing by myself, like in this room and I still don't know but I'm just like learning about makeup <laughs> which is very Clarice too she's very into makeup very into the way that makeup you know can, is a kind of mask yeah in a way like you pull yourself together you know put on that lipstick and you feel you know I'm organized okay <laughs> I can do it but um so I mean that's you know so stuff like that or like the religious stuff you know you just you do a combination of you do as much as you can on the internet and there's so much now you know I'm like watching some Brazilian families like vacation videos to France just for who knows why just like stuff like this or you talk you know I I asked some friends who grew up Catholic here 
you know, do you call it the Stations of the Cross? What is it in the church? You know, you've got the 14 stations. That's the Via Crucis du Corpo is the Stations of the Cross of the Body. But obviously you can't make that the title because it's so clunky. <laughs> so, And the earlier version was the Stations of the Body. But you lose a little, and especially, you know, people who don't have that automatic Catholic reference. So... Right. We kept it as, um, I discussed that with Ben and we decided to keep it as the Via Crucis of the Body. And, it, you know, it's a little bit strange. It's Latin, um, but I think it, it works. Know, it, it works, works. yeah. Sense. I'm happy with that solution. Did you visit yeah. churches in, in Brazil? Did you go to Mass as part of your research? You know, I actually never, I, so I've spent a long time in Brazil, but since I started translating um, this book, I haven't been back to Brazil. I just oh. haven't had time no. <laughs> you have to go. Yeah. I should go back. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think I, I was there for so long. I mean, the last time I was in Brazil, um, it was on a Fulbright. And I was there for almost two years, um, year and a half, like 2011 to 2012. And that was when I really, that's when I met, met Ben. That's when I solidified my Portuguese just, you know, after, you know, I've been speaking it for 12 years, more than that, probably 13, 14. But that really solidified in that last time. So I feel like I drew a lot on what I know from my experience in Brazil. So, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. And um, my last question, hmm, well, I have two more. One more. <laughs> um, ben, in, in his introduction, he, he contains, he has this uh, fantastic assessment of Clarice that I think is envelope pushing. And he talks about her trajectory as a writer, specifically through the prism of her complete stories as collected in one volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've talked about this too, the, the, the four decades yeah. that, that you trace. So um, he says, this is a record of a woman's entire life written over a woman's entire life. As such, it seems to be the first such total record written in any country. The sweeping claim requires qualifications. A wife and a mother, a bourgeois Western heterosexual woman's life. A woman who was not interrupted. A woman who did not start writing late or stop from marriage or children or succumb to drugs or suicide. A woman who, like so many male writers, began in her teens and carried on to the end. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I read his introduction as he was working on it and I said, Ben, that's a really bold claim. I don't know. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, the drugs or suicide he's referring to Virginia Woolf, um, you know, Sylvia Plath. I don't know. I mean, you can name a lot of it. I mean, here's the thing is that I don't know. He's given to sweeping statements. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. You know, I would love to hear someone think of somebody like that who wrote from such a young age and wrote throughout her entire life because so many times I mean we know this that women writers historically and still today I mean you get interrupted by children by just you know just societal pressures and you know I think a lot of there's it's more common to hear about women writers who don't really get started until their 40s their 50s their 60s either because they've lived a whole life where they were catering to their husbands or the children or because you just I mean you know women just aren't raised to have that same kind of confidence that machismo (laughs) that men do and it takes I mean you have to be really bold to just say, yeah, the world wants to hear this, what I have to say, <laughs> you know. How did so, it feel for you to go through, in just two years, those four decades of uninterrupted writing? That, I think maybe that's the better question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I mean, I still want to think about, you know, who... Who would be a counterexample? Who, yeah, or, yeah, example alongside her, but, but, you know, I take his point that, 
she is remarkable in her output, and she never did stop. I mean, she had you know plenty of suicidal thoughts, but she said she criticized Virginia Woolf for this. She said, you know, the, our duty is to see it through to the bitter end. You have to keep going, and there's so much in the later work. I mean, so it's so. Again, you know, you have a woman's whole life here. It's not literal. And, you know, in her earlier stories, she has stories about older women, about women who are married when she was when she was still single. And then when she's older, she has stories about younger women. You know, it's all, it's all over the place. But you do get this sense of an entire writing life that is very remarkable. And, you know, you have her... You just feel all this excitement about language, about literature in her early years. You know, when she's writing it as, at the age of 19, her first novel made a huge sensation when she was just 23, near to the wild heart. And then, and then after that, you know, you see her really gain this mastery over Portuguese, over um, literary form. Like the, the collections, The Foreign Legion and Family Ties, which are the most canonical. Those are really the most classically literary. And they're so full. They were the most difficult to translate, actually, because they're so dense. They're really lyrical. You know, there's so much happening in every sentence and so much character. And yeah, there's just a lot in them. And toward the end, she just kind of, she reaches a certain point where I think, I mean, she feels like she's done all that she can in literature. And she's just over it. She's over being respected as a literary writer. And she says, you know, I want the anti-literature of the thing, and she's just even with the via crucis of the body. You know, there are a lot of stories that are very sexual. They're very there's a lot of like a lot of bodily fluids, murders. They're kind of pulpy, a little campy, a little pulpy. You know, there's like a woman and her drag drag queen best friend going after the same man and at the end she's she's a housewife by day stripper by night and she dances at this club in Copacabana and her best friend who's a drag queen like they both start dancing with the same kind of like you know rich foreign guy and she kind of gets him at the end and her friend the drag queen she's like you're not even a real woman you don't even know how to fry an egg she's like you're right it's like stuff like that I mean just like over it's amazing it's over the top but at the time it's 1974 people were so embarrassed by they said this is trash this is pornographic and this is one of my favorite lines of all time and Claudice she says in her preface she says someone told me not to write this they said it was trash but there's a time for everything there's also the time for trash (laughs) (laughs) and you like I mean you feel that by the end of her life she doesn't care she says my literary to hell with my literary reputation to hell with what people think I'm just going to do what I want and it's true I mean for a long time you know critics scholars they do not write about the Via Cruz of the body and where were you at night they don't write about the later work because everyone's embarrassed or they think it's kind of inferior work it feels more tossed off you know the other stuff it feels like you can feel that she did a billion drafts of it all and it's so meticulously crafted and toward the end it feels like oh I just wrote this in a weekend who cares and it's also amazing you know but it's like people dismissed it and that's a big risk I think Mm. if you want to be a relevant author and a respected author so I think just accompanying her across all those changes and just seeing you know her kind of go through this arc was really incredible and just to feel her courage and her independence in doing that was very inspiring yeah thank you mm-hmm. so i want to open the floor to questions from all of you and i don't know if we have a mic or if people should come up so we can hear your question um so would you talk about the Portuguese language and what it took to find your, your voice of that version? Uh-huh. Okay, so um, the question's about the Portuguese language and how I found my voice. Um, 
Um, well, you know, her her language is very difficult because the better your Portuguese gets and the closer you get to her Portuguese, the more difficult she becomes because it's so subtle what she's doing. She'll just change a preposition. That's the wrong preposition, but it still works. <laughs> or she'll add a syllable like ela fantastico, fantastico, or fantasticava, fantasticava. So in, in uh, I think it's Daydream and Drunkenness um, of a Young Lady you know, it's like she's fantasizing, kind of dreaming before she goes to sleep, but it's um, fantasio, but she says fantastico, which doesn't exist, but it almost sounds like it could exist. Because Portuguese also, you know, people, it's a, it's a very oral language, and people do just kind of like, I mean, you know, not all the time, but there are a lot of times, you know, these words will just, you know, they'll happen, and they don't sound as jarring as they do in English. You know, when someone kind of, like, adds, like, there's a word, pelanta, there's a woman eating a chicken that's pelanta, and you know, there's peli, which means skin, and anta is an adjective that means very, but you've never heard it together as pelanta, and it just means, like, you know, like a flabby chicken. So this is actually Ben's idea. We're like, what are we going to do? It's a little bit weird. Should we do something weird in English? He's like, how about flabular? It's like... <laughs> That could work, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a, so I think, yeah, so I mean, the voice that I did for her was, um, you know, basically a literary voice, but direct, straightforward. Um, sometimes, but you know, sometimes she gets more literary, sometimes she gets less. So I try to trace that. And then um, the thing I cared the most about and especially because the earlier translations really just smooth over her work. I mean, she just sounds literary, just kind of like generic. I mean, she's beautiful still. I mean, you still get the force of her writing, but um, in some of the earlier translations, like you just think, oh, she's very literary. Whereas now you're like, oh, she's a total weirdo. It's like amazing. You know, she's doing, she's just, you know, much more inventive than you got before. So for me, the most important question was, is this strange in Portuguese? And one of my colleagues, Breno, is <laughs> from Brazil. It's like one of, he's one of my most important um, Brazilian colleagues. Who would, I just you know write to him and say, Breno, like, is this weird? Is this a thing in Portuguese? Or is just, just this just Clarice? And you know, more often than not, I would say, ah, it's just Clarice. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When I was walking around and I passed by here and I saw Clarice was one of the best sellers, I, mm-hmm. got, I got shocked as a Brazilian and happy as well. Oh, mm-hmm. she's here. <laughs> and what I want to understand is uh, how did you make to connect something that for us Brazilians is so deep? Because when you read Clarice in your 50s and your 60s, your life changes. Mm-hmm. And it's something very sophisticated and difficult to read, even for Portuguese speakers. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to know what's the essence of the author that you brought in your translation for this public of English speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, I mean, just on one hand, just to go off the same thing that I was saying, I think um, I wanted, Ben and I both, you know, because he edited, he went over every word in the Portuguese, so, um, you know, it was great to have someone to talk through all the most difficult, dis- you know, just to talk through the manuscript with, and, you know, he's looking over everything, um, but I think uh, one of the goals, I mean, in this translation and all of the new translations since since 2011 is to have a Clarice who is more original. I mean, I think, you know, she's hitting in this way now. 
um, she's hitting people on a deeper level, I think, because she's much more original. Um, but I think I was very interested in Magdalena and her review in the millions. And I think it's right. I mean, she's saying, you were saying that um, this is a much more contemporary Clarice. So the voice, um, she's very, you know, she's, she's strange, but she's also, I mean, I just can't, I couldn't do like a 1960s voice. I wouldn't even know how to do that. So I think... Um, you know, that you try to make your voice neutral but also kind of match the register but be um, not have too much slang from today. I mean, sometimes the slang stuff is the hardest to do because it gets the dated the most quickly. So, but you were saying this is a more colloquial Claudice or modern maybe. Yeah, and I, I think also that um, the acrobatics in her language in Portuguese, that really fits with our contemporary moment. You know, this kind of it's it feels maybe fragmented or it feels maybe like it's a digression you're changing the topic you're multitasking you're texting while watching television while writing something but it's all connected and you saw you see that in the story that you read where there's the five stories and then suddenly the narrator says um, well we're in the fifth story but let's take something from the third story and bring it in and she just will make moves like that that I think um, make a lot of sense for us in the, in the contemporary moment. And I think her playfulness and her, the multiplicity of, of her registers also is very um, interesting and provocative. She's very philosophical while also she can be very bodily, sexual, yeah, yeah. provocative, uh, playful, childlike, all of those things. And, and I think also a writer whose narrators are often willing to say, I don't know what's happening. Or I don't know why that happened. As opposed to this um, omnipresent narrator, maybe more male narrator, who's mm-hmm. you know, always very clear on what the story is and what you're being told, and it is true, or maybe it's all not true, because he's completely unreliable. You know? So I think all of those things are very true to her original writing, but are also very... We are all living that today. Did you know that she became an Indian internet and a social network in Brazil, like a symbol of philosophy so everyone in like, oh. who writes like stupid things or cheap philosophy and, and they write down Gladys and Spectre because she's a symbol of high philosophy with uh, uh, everyday situation it's like a weird hallmark card effect <laughs> like you have like a picture of a flower uh-huh. and then some platitude and it's like Clarice respect <laughs> and then on that note actually there's just I mean the internet's just I mean it's like a wild west out there it's like you know several literary journals of repute have been plucking off the internet without even just doing google image search Clarice Lispector and not even clicking on the page or maybe because they can't read the Portuguese circulating two ersatz Clarices one is this like Actress Hita Elmore from 1998, who has this like awful still of like her and pearls with like a cigarette, and it's like over the top, <laughs> and it's just around like writing down. I'm like, that's not the real Claudia. So please replace it. <laughs> and then the other an one, imposter. <laughs> and the other one, I actually just emailed Lapham's Quarterly today and said, you know what? You know that picture you have of contributors? She's in their fall fashion issue. It's it's correct in the in the print edition, but online, it's like this Playboy bunny from 1956 who also. <laughs> a memoir okay so maybe I'm not get, doing her like the service but I mean it's just like you know like cone bra um, typewriter and like it's just like a sexualized version of like sexy writer <laughs> and you kind of get that in Claudia C but I mean, I've said this before but it's like what attracts me about 
you know, her gaze, her look, and every picture of the real Clarice is not that, not just that she was so beautiful, but she has this magnetic gaze, and she's so self-possessed. She just knows herself, and is just so master of herself, and she's looking back in the camera, and it's like, it's something that can't be faked. So when I see the fakes, I'm like, oh, this like gives me pain. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the internet's all over the place. <laughs> Yeah. So I just—it's a question that I could probably Google, but she was from asking. She was from Ukraine, but she moved. Did her parents speak Ukrainian? Did she grow up polyglot? Did she know English? Was she interested? If she knew English, did she ask Bishop about trying to get? Did she have a language? She's yeah, her parents escaped the pogroms in the Ukraine and and I believe they spoke Yiddish. I'm pretty sure they spoke Yiddish at home. But you know, her mother at a certain point she had I mean you can read about this in, in Ben's um biography of her Why This World, but you know, it's a very sad story. Her mother um was raped in during the pogroms and contracted syphilis and so she was sick um throughout Clarice's childhood and I think she passed away when Clarice was nine mm. so at a certain point she was just you know she wasn't very active she was you know almost paralyzed um, but her family I mean they were they she came from a family with rabbinical ties um, so there's you know her sister is a Jewish right she writes about Jewish themes um, so she definitely grew up she grew up Brazilian, you know, I mean, she was two when she came to Brazil, and she actually didn't have an accent, she had a speech impediment, it was um, a tongue, and she got very, I mean, you can watch her last interview on YouTube, but they ask her about it, and she gets really upset, you know, I'm Brazilian, and she has, I forget what it is. Um, is it a tongue tie? It's a tongue tie, something like that, yeah, so she spoke a little bit differently, and she you know, had thought about getting it removed, but she thought, no, this is just me. But I do think, I mean, a lot of her writing, her perspective does come, I mean, Ben talks a lot about the Jewish mysticism, which I think is definitely there, but I also think that, you know, a lot of her difference comes from growing up in in a minority community within Brazil or having, you know, a family, you know, kind of one foot in Brazil, one foot out. So. That's another thing yeah. that I've always found so interesting about Clarice. Her parents were trying to escape and figure out where to move with the children. And they had some relatives in Brazil and some relatives yeah. in the United States. Right, right. So she might have become an English language writer, but she didn't. Mm -hmm. And she really um, clung fiercely to her Brazilian identity and the fact that mm -hmm. she was a Brazilian writer writing in Portuguese. So mm -hmm. I always think what would have been yeah, but she also translated, um, she didn't translate Bishop, she translated, oh, she, she translated Catherine Mansfield, but then she did a whole bunch of different classics, um, but she was a diplomat's wife in the 60s, and so she lived in Rome, she lived in Bern, Switzerland, Washington, D.C., so, yeah. Um, did you ever, or I guess, how did you resist the temptation to make sense of certain phrases or paragraphs that just were intentionally did it make t did it make sense in Portuguese? <laughs> said, like you know, grammatically, like I, I've done a bit of, a little bit of translation and I just always want to just fix it. 
how do we resist that? Yeah, I mean, I think that translation is this, at the heart of it is this balance between wanting to explain it. Because, you know, translating is very interpretive and a certain, to a certain extent you are kind of explaining it, but you have to hold yourself back. So, you know, for example, there was this phrase, Ponto de Trigo, I never, I never thought that the world and I would reach this point of wheat. What is Ponto do Trigo? What does that mean? Like harvest? Like, oh, the world and I would never reach this ripeness. And I really wanted to explain it. And I asked, you know, a lot of Brazilian friends. And I said, no, it's just Ponto. I don't know either. And so and there's so many moments like that where if she's just being literal, you could maybe have a more figurative interpretation, but you just have to leave it at that. Mm. And also, you know, sometimes just not fill in a word. But I, th- I do think it takes a lot of checking your ego and just being aware of that that you you did not write this and someone else wrote it and this is their decision and it's different you know when I translate younger authors I will edit with them and sometimes you are aware of someone you know maybe they've got their style down but they're still working through some things so it's a little bit more fluid but someone you know who's a dead canonical like the most one of the most important writers in Brazil it's like you can't mess with her stuff you do not know more than she does (laughs) so you just have to like back up if she puts a colon in a weird place you better just put the colon there because <laughs> you know so like earlier translators have like taken out the comma put a period because like this doesn't make sense and so you know in this round I think that is very much a lot of the attitude the philosophy of translation in all of these this new series is like just if she did something out of the ordinary you might not know why on the first 30 times you read it but maybe the 200th time or someone else will figure it out so yeah are we winding up? We... Thank you so much for coming. And um, are you going to sign some books? I think like? so, yeah. yeah. So Katrina will sign copies if, you, if any of you want that. And you can also come up and ask any questions. Don't be shy. Thank yeah, you for thank coming you. tonight. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.